Hi, I'm Iris Muller. I'm a certified rehabilitation counselor and a proud mom of two children, one of whom has quadriplegic cerebral palsy and is nonverbal. And I'm Alma Schneider, a licensed clinical social worker and the proud mom of four children, one of whom has Prader-Willi syndrome. In this podcast, we discuss the uncensored truth about raising kids with disabilities. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. This is Two Moms No Fluff. Hello, Alma, and hello to our listeners, especially the new ones. Welcome. We're so happy to have you here. We are Two Moms No Fluff, the place that we talk about life with kids with disabilities, and we don't sugarcoat anything. We just talk about the real hard truth of our situation, and we honestly share our stories and experiences with the hopes that this would give you some support and help when you're dealing with the exact same issues that we deal with on a daily basis. So thank you for joining us. And Alma, what are we going to talk about today? Well, um, I think we're going to be talking about our partners, our communication with our partners to make our lives as pleasant, joyful, and stress-free as possible. Mm, Okay. Uh, Yeah, talking about our partners is always an interesting subject. But before we move to that, I have to like stop everything and ask you, what are you wearing today, Anna? This looks like a fabulous shirt. Oh my gosh! um, Yes, this is um, a fabulous little uh, uh, turtleneck that um, I probably got at some yard sale or thrift shop. I don't remember, but. I haven't seen it for a really long time. And actually there's a very funny story that goes for the, with this shirt. Ah, we want the stories. Well, I chose it today because I was doing my daily routine of going through my son's closets and drawers to see if there was any stolen uh, food. Because unfortunately that is a, that's a normal kind of situation with Prader-Willi syndrome because people who have Prader-Willi syndrome are um, in need of food at all times. Their brain is telling them that they're hungry at all times. So people who have it are very prone to sneaking food and hiding it. And um, I do as much as I can, even though it's never enough, I go through all the drawers and all just to see if I can find any food or wrappers that have been snuck away. But I actually went into his closet this morning and and this shirt fell out because I I store so much of my clothing in my other kids' closets and this (laughs) literally tumbled out. And I was like, oh, I haven't seen that little number in a while. I'm going to wear it today. It's cute, isn't it? It's very cute. Yes. Thank you. I feel like it's like a snake pattern, but it's green for those of you who don't have the uh, video on. But thank you for noticing. I I appreciate it. Yeah, it's like... when you're searching for stolen food <laughs> just a little window uh, in my life here I'm sure that you know people are people I think uh, people with typical kids are looking for like you know condoms and and all sorts of other interesting things in their kids room or drugs and here I am looking for you know packs of Oreos and <laughs> cheese doodles so um anyway <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we can talk about that in another episode yeah, so, I'm just impressed with the fact that you don't have enough space in your own closet and you need to stash clothes in other kids' closets. Thank God you have four kids, so you have enough room for your endless wardrobe. 
it's it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. And as the kids are leaving for college, the older kids, their closets are totally overrun with mommy's yard sale finds. So, you know, it's a little vice I have. It could be worse, right? It could be <laughs> drugs or, you know. Uh, there are so what? many ways that the two of us are opposites. Like people, <laughs> seriously, all my clothes fit in into one dresser with oh four drawers. Everything fits into that in our old New Jersey apartment. That's where all my stuff was. And I use the rest of my walking closet as my tiny office. So uh, yeah, uh, this yeah. is what happens when you wear a uniform of the same exact clothes every single day. I change my clothes sometimes twice a day if I'm in the mood. <laughs> I, I change my clothes four times a day, but it's still the exact same item. <laughs> Well, listen, novelty, and actually this is a great segue into the topic that we're discussing. Novelty is something that is really, really important in uplifting our moods. Did you know that? It's actually a fact and that we have little, I don't know if it's dopamine or whatever it is, um, uptake when we when there is novelty in our life. So I do like to get new, new, you know, I don't buy new clothes. I buy used because I like, you know, to recycle and it's fun to, to, to get new things. And then I'll share, I'll give away my old stuff or wear my old stuff. But um, novelty is really important. So that, that can bring us into our discussion of relationships because there needs to be some novelty and some, real work that needs to be done to keep our relationships solid um, and interesting, especially when we have unique situations at home that can cause maybe a little bit more stress than a typical everyday household. So let's just jump right in, shall we? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So yeah, I think that um, in, in this like journey, Mm -hmm. uh, there is sometimes, you know, a lot of uh, dynamics between partners that can change dramatically. And uh, I think that uh, one of the things that happens a lot is a blame game. There yeah. is a new diagnosis and then couples start to play that awful game of who's to blame. And unfortunately, sometimes there is someone who is really responsible for a, an accident or a situation in which a disability occurred. Like in our family- um, Like we, doing things or doing drugs while you're pregnant, things like that. Yes. Um, and yeah. even you know, some people don't know that they're pregnant and they might be doing you know, recreational stuff. So that's you know, very unfortunate, but they're, you know, if somebody's addicted and they do that, you know, I don't like the word blame, but I don't know what else, what else, it more of a, there's an actual reason. There's a, there's a, a cause and effect, let's yeah. say. Yeah. But when, when the dynamics is around blame, it's no, no matter what, what it is. And sometimes there, there is absolutely no connection between the disability right. or, or to fault, if you can call it that. But, right. but nevertheless, um, people kind of, they don't really know what to do and it, to maybe distance themselves from this incident, uh, they, they do something like that. And I, uh, I think that uh, usually a lot of people are just looking at themselves in the mirror and they're saying, we were so normal, like everything about, it, about us is 
people, individuals, as a couple, we are just so typical. Like, how come this happened in our family? Like, that this, this can't be us. This is something that happens to other people, not right. us. And uh, there is a lot of uh, kind of processing of the reality and the uh, self kind of, um, I guess, uh, realization, you know? Uh, so basically, I, I think that... Uh, I am. I have a bit of familiarity with the topic of fault and blame because uh, in our uh, situation, you know, I had uh, I had both my kids in um, in a home birth, mm -hmm. and this was something that was very very hard for <clears throat> sorry my parents-in-law to accept this whole concept and no statistics about the safety and uh, you know um, I guess advantages of home birth could impress uh, these people. And uh, at the end of the day, when we ended up having a child with cerebral palsy, all they could do is kind of in between the lines in every interaction, kind of like poke us in the eye with that, you know, like, yeah, you know, yeah. now you, you, you pay for what you did in a way. <clears throat> and, uh, Let me can I interrupt for one second? Was your was it your decision to do this or a joint decision between you and your husband? Uh, obviously, it was a joint decision in which I think, as the birthing mom, I had more to say because it was my my body, my birth, and my my choice. Given given that this is something I used to work when I was a teenager, I worked in Israel in a you know a natural birth center as a secretary for one summer. But during that one summer, I read so much about like home births and natural birth. It's something that I think a no typical 16 year old is not usually exposed to it, the magnitude that I did. I just scored that summer gig that uh, really changed a lot of things in how I viewed, you know, the whole process of birthing. They had like folders and folders of birth stories and uh, just reading those stories really changed my view about the whole process and when, I got married, this was one of the things that was kind of laid on the table years before that this is what I would do when I have children and, and this is what I did. And uh, not arguing or talking at all about home birth in general, it was just like this big white elephant in the room every time like we were together. And it, it made it really hard. And it was also especially hard for my husband to kind of be the buffer in between their criticism and blame, which was totally unbased because uh, th there was maybe there was a difficult birth, but the part of the birth is also the the actual, you know, uh, infant kind of uh, pushing their way through the birth canal. And when there is a child that doesn't have the baby right reflexes, something about this whole process is not as it should be. And because she wasn't oxygen deprived at any given point during the birth um, process, it wasn't kind of related to that, but it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't logics. It was just like something for them, an issue for them. And that made the relationship between my husband and myself a little bit more complicated. There were kind of somebody outside dripping kind of little drops of poison into this bowl of water we were drinking. And it was very, very hard to kind of deal with that. Uh, I don't know if you have other, like uh, another story of how things kind of get complicated with the, with partners, but uh, I, I know that this was a, a, a real challenge for us to kind of navigate this. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm wondering before I delve into some of my stories, I'm wondering um, 
how you dealt with that. Did you, did you have to have talks with your husband about it with Ariel or um, did he stand up and support you in front of them or to them, you know, behind the scenes? How did that play out? Yeah. So, okay. First of all, I, I have to, I have to say that uh, uh, both, uh, both my husband and myself, like we did a, uh, uh, marriage counseling or a uh, couple's counseling during this whole portion of, uh, you know, diagnosis and uh, around the birth of my daughter. I personally did like independently trauma therapy to mm-hmm. deal with that. So we were kind of in a more solid ground to deal with that maybe than a, a couple that doesn't kind of constantly work on what they're dealing with. So right. that was really helpful. Mm-hmm. And uh, Yes, in a way, he he tried to the best of his ability back then to kind of like stand between me and the criticism. Right. But it was kind of like it it always kept coming in in unexpected ways in, in the wrong times, always, right. uh, because there isn't a right time to criticize someone and judge them for something that honestly, even if it was like totally 100% uh, my fault, what could we do? do now about it that cannot be changed Mm -hmm. and the best interest of a a couple or parents of a child with special needs is to stay together it's Mm -hmm. helpful to both sides of the equation in terms of partners and it's helpful also to the child and because it's their grandchild it should have been something that was in their interest Mm -hmm. to support Uh, but uh, but basically I'm saying that uh, in relationship to the partner, because this situation could have very easily, without the right support and without the open discussion and communication around that, could have mm-hmm. escalated to a complete separation. That's what happens to some couples. Sure. Uh, but um, this is this is. A, I think it's not even a day to day. It's kind of a general notion that whether it's there or it, it's not it can really tear couples apart. And I think that what's important is to look beyond that. It's looking where we want to be, both as a couple and as a family, and what is our goal. And the goal, I think, for a lot of people is always to stay together and to use that person that is next to you, that has been your partner through many other things until that point of diagnosis, to use this to connect you more, yeah. to bring you together, to help you join forces. So you, the two of you are definitely more than one plus one and that you have uh, more to contribute to each other, to support each other in this journey and also more to contribute to your child because as a couple, there is you know, a lot of power in this uh, unity in many, many situations. And we'll talk about it later. It's so important. And um, I, I wanna point out, you know, how in the media um, there is so much about uh, the the divorce rate for parents of kids with disabilities. And it's funny because the research that we did before this episode, you know, we're curious, like how, you know, what is the divorce rate? And in the media, it really looks like it's 80% of couples who have a child with a disability get divorced as compared to around 50 um, for couples who do not have a child with a disability. But it really doesn't look like that's an accurate um, an accurate statistic. And it sa- seems like there is a significantly, uh, a significant 
uh, a little sig significance in an increase in divorce, I'm not saying this right, that there's a, there's a significant, and here I was a psych major with having gone through <laughs> like doing research. There is a tiny bit of an increase in the rate of divorce for parents of kids with disabilities, but not, not a tremendously um, higher rate of divorce, but there is more divorce with parents of kids with disabilities. So statistically more, significant raise in the number, although the number is not significantly higher. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's, really important for all couples, not just couples who have a child with a disability, to really have the proper communication and a really solid foundation before having any children. But that's, you know, hindsight is 2020. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of us do not have that foundation beforehand. And it's, it's really important that as soon as there is a diagnosis that people jump into therapy as fast as their little legs can carry them because it is very, very important to be as solid as, as we can be, to be a unified front because there are so many things that can be a conflict. Um, and I'm just gonna say just having children because my son with a disability was my third out of four kids. And we had tremendous difficulties with our first and second kid, <laughs> so much so that, you know, um, we went to counseling after the second kid to prepare for the third kid. And unfortunately, we didn't we didn't stay in counseling that long. And we really should have um, because we, we thought we knew more than the, than the therapist, uh, which also kind of brought us together a little bit more kind of we were us against the, the therapist because he, he wasn't so great. But it's really important that communication a really good communication is established. Even I think that everybody, when they get married, should have the uh, these communication workshops because it enters, it really hits the fan once you have kids because you are no longer two entities. You now are all wrapped up with the child. And there are so many things that can trigger us from, you know, with things from our own childhoods, which is what, what happens. So, um, I don't even know where to begin, but I'll, since you started with, you know, the initial diagnosis, um, my husband and I really were a unified front from the start dealing with the issues having to do with um, Lincoln's disability. We really have worked together um, with, you know, sort of an us against the world attitude, um, advocating for him with the school system, with, you know, just talking with each other about things in society. I have always had, you know, been more sensitive to um, things that happen in the community. He might get, you know, angry about it or like shocked. And I, it really takes its toll on me. So one of the things that we've had to do is, you know, I want him to listen to me. And I just, again, it's not like a fixing of the problem, but it's really a hearing me out. Um, to tell stories because for me, and I'm sure for a lot of other people listening to this, the, the mom, you know, the woman is the one who's doing a lot of, um, you know, in a heterosexual relationship, the, the woman is doing a lot of the work and in other kinds of relationships, um, uh, one person is doing more of the bulk work um, of the emotional stuff, the day-to-day being home uh, a lot more of the time than the other partner. And I don't wanna, you know, it could be either gender. Um, 
and if it's, you know, it could be two men, two women, a man and a woman, um, but one part, one person in the partnership is going to be spending more time and may have a need for more discussion about what's going on during the day. And it's really important that the other partner really be able to listen and tolerate it. And sometimes it's really hard for that other person because there's nothing they can do about it. And they just, they have to sit with those difficult feelings. Um, so that's really important to be able to sit with those feelings and listen and support without saying, well, we can do this, 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 and this to fix it. Because sometimes there is no fix. It's just a matter of supporting the person who's experiencing these um, challenges on a daily basis. And these could be challenges with feeding, challenges with um, different behaviors of the child, of the baby or the child, but just someone who's supportive and acknowledging how hard it is because a lot of times, and I know that this is not just um, myself because this has been ongoing discussion with many friends of mine, um, friends and acquaintances in the disability community, and even people with who don't, who don't have kids with disabilities, when one partner is out of the house more than the other partner, there, there might not be as much acknowledgement or validation about the job that we're doing because um, it is a job and that can cause a lot of conflict. So it's really important that couples um, discuss that, like that I need you to, to, to acknowledge how much I'm doing and how much, you know, and if, if there is a need to get more support or help with the situation, then the partner can help with that. But more often than not, the partner who's home more and dealing with more of the day-to-day -day stuff um, needs to feel acknowledged and validated because if not, that can that can really damage um, a relationship. So that's that's one thing that I'm thinking of. Um, but something that it, you made me think about when Lincoln was first born, um, something that I was able to I, I have you know I've mentioned in other episodes that my, you know, my family and friends came to the hospital and they were, you know, they were all there for me and for, for my husband, but he didn't have his family. This was the New York City. He didn't have his, any family members there. And I knew that I needed, you know, the, the support of my family. And I, and I was, um, nobody was coming for him and he wasn't, he's not someone to call and ask for help. And I felt that he really needed support because I couldn't support him because I was in such a state that I knew that I wasn't capable of being able to take care of him. And even though he wasn't asking for help, I secretly called his family and friends. And I said, would you please, you know, come here. You know, he's not asking for it, but we need, you know, we need you. And I didn't tell him that I called him and it was really meaningful to him that they all came, but he hadn't told them that he needed them to come. He didn't ask for that help. Um, and that actually is interesting because that has been an ongoing theme with, with, you know, I will be very vocal about needing something and he won't. And that's probably, you know, it's not, it's a problem. You, you need to be able to ask for help. So his family did come and his friends, you know, of course they came if they knew that they were needed because he wasn't asking for it. They didn't, they didn't come, um, but they did come. And I did tell him eventually this is, this podcast will not be a shock to him because years later I did tell him that, um, that I did make that call because it was relevant in conversations that we were having. Um, but sometimes you have to take that step for your partner. If they can't, take on something for themselves necessarily that you might feel is important for them um, to take that step and support them 
in a way. So I'm saying I'm saying that I couldn't personally support him, but I found ways that he could be supported by contacting his family and friends who were happy to come. They were thrilled to come and support him. They just didn't know to do so at the time. Um, so being attuned to our partner's needs um, as much as we can, and that can be really challenging when we are so needy, when we are in a difficult situation. I'm talking a lot. Do you want to take over? And That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. I hear you. I'm listening. It sounds very familiar. I want to say that uh, uh, asking for help for your partner uh, is admirable. And uh, I salute you for doing that um, for your spouse. I just, uh, I, while my partner was able to ask for help, it was a very, very sad realization for me and even more so for him when his family didn't step forward to help. And that's yeah. also kind of something that ends up falling in a way on the relationship because uh, we people, we need help and support. It's like there is no way around it. And when the people that you hope and trust that would be there for you, they're not there, there is already kind of an imbalance, you know, in the relationship. And while my family stepped uh, to the kind of challenge and, and helped out on my uh, husband's side, it was a very, very rough terrain to cross. And it was, it was not, not nice. And then in many ways, I was able to find the power within me to support him because I saw the loneliness in the situation. It was so unfair and unjust that uh, it, it helped bring the maybe helping profession out of me and right. to become more of a support system to him, even though I was myself in a total maybe emotional chaos and in time of, I, I think, the greatest need in my life. And uh, that being said, I think that, uh, again, there is this dynamics between people and uh, you are with the same partner for many, many years sometimes, but it's not the same person. The person changes every day. If the person didn't sleep through the night, you know, you meet in the morning someone else and if you would have both had a wonderful night's sleep and you had a good breakfast and you're starting your day kind of on a more balanced, uh, I guess, background. But when when push comes to shove or when the shit hits the fan, <laughs> excuse my French, okay? But when that happens, like things are like really both, both partners are pushed to the end kind of, of their capability and the edge of their existence in a way, then friction happens. It's like there's nothing left to give. I'm, I'm tired. I'm hungry. I'm frustrated. I am uh, tired. And now I need to also like care about someone else's feeling. I can't do that right now. I'm at the edge. But, yeah. but that's what the situation calls for. And I have to say that uh, I, I, think that all in all my partner is a little bit more emotionally balanced than I am and in many times he somehow was able to anchor me and to kind of because he was a little bit more calm a little bit again less sensitive the example you gave than I was to reactions from people and society and things that were not right you know in terms of how a medical appointment went or whatever it was and um 
although sometimes I would like be angry with him, like, how come you're not furious? It's just so infuriating, like this and that happened. Uh, I would get mad at that. On the other hand, when I was calm, I was able to understand that maybe his calmness helped me find my way back to center. And mm-hmm. uh, this is the, the beauty of having two different people, unless you married your, like, <laughs> I guess, identical twin. That's yeah. the beauty of having two, two different people deal with the same situation because they would both approach it with different mindset and different attitudes because they are different. And there is also a lot of beauty and power to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's funny, you're, you're reminding me of, um, you know, when we were trying to figure out what my son's diagnosis was in the hospital. Um, I couldn't even eat. I was, I was so distraught, um, you know, cause you go from thinking you had this healthy pregnancy and then the baby comes out and they're like, there's something terribly wrong. We don't know what it is yet. We're waiting to hear. So I was like physically sick, you know, couldn't eat, um, waiting for this. And Brian would, was sitting there eating a, like a yogurt parfait say <laughs> across the street has the best yogurt parfaits he was sitting there enjoying a yogurt parfait and I was just in disbelief that he could actually even eat mm. and it was a very different way of dealing with the situation that I didn't mind so much because he was as you said, more, you know, it appeared to be more stable and more, you know, able to deal with this in a clear way. I will say that as time went on, I realized um, that there needed to be some work there because when one partner is so able to be so removed from a situation, it's not always a positive thing because the other partner, I was actually just listening to Esther Perel on Red Table Talk with Jada Pinkett and her mother um, the other day. My friend Lisa sent me the um, sent me that uh, the YouTube. It's like it's, it's on YouTube about it. But they were talking about um, it was really interesting just talking about couples, and they were talking about the fact that when that happens, it really one, the other partner is really holding all of that emotional stuff. You don't even realize it, but I sort of unconsciously was taking all of his upset that wasn't being expressed. And I was having to take it on more because he wasn't. And so as much as that seemed like such a positive back then that he could remain, you know, focused and clear, the lack of emotion, even I'm not saying he wasn't upset by the whole situation and worried, it, it felt like I had to take on more of it. Like, how are you not upset? How are you not, you know, because my way of dealing with things is crying and talking about it and, you know, dealing with it and processing it. And his was, you know, we're going to, you know, these things just happen. And, you know, it was a fluke, you know, at conception, what are we going to do about it? And I was, you know, like you, like, it's not, how is it possible? It's not fair. It's unjust. You know, what did we, you know, how, how come we are dealing with this situation that it was so, we had such a different way of dealing with it, that there were some things in the background that weren't being dealt with that through the years became more apparent and kind of blew up in the ways that we were dealing with the kids and the different parenting styles with the other kids. So all to say that there, it's really important to, 
talk about these issues and we might not even have the words to describe. Like I can tell you, I can describe and articulate uh, those feelings that were from back then now, but I didn't even have words or I wasn't even conscious of what was going on at that time. I just knew that we had a very different way of dealing with things. Even though we were unified with dealing with Lincoln's disability, slowly but surely other things were happening that were similar to that initial reaction that became a problem. So it's really important to have continuing communication. I'm gonna give an example to sort of explain what, um, what I mean. So because, um, you know, we, Brian worked and had a, a very, you know, strong work life and, and worked a lot. I, whenever he would want to play golf, that's one of his passions. I would, I would say, yes, like if he would say, I'm going to go play golf. I, and I would say, okay, but I would be really, really, really resentful when he would go play golf. And right before he would go play golf, I would get really bitchy and just, and he was like, you're letting, you know, you're saying I can go and then you ruin it for me be, right before I go. And I couldn't help myself. Like I would say something passive aggressive as he was leaving. And we ended up, you know, in therapy. And one of the things that came out and it was really interesting was that I did have the, um, I did have the genuine feeling like he deserved a break. He, he did do a lot in the house. He deserved a break. But golf takes six hours on a weekend, six hours. So in my heart, I wanted him to be able to go play golf. But, and I felt like, okay, I can handle it. I'm capable of taking care of the kids on the weekend. But that was really our only combined time together that was really a lot of time on the weekends. And he was taking a big portion of that time and he was playing golf. So I had, I didn't even realize it, but I was so conflicted. I was so ready for him to have a break. He deserved it. He deserved, deserved some time with friends, but at the same time, I wanted to kill him. And I was like, you know, I didn't even have the consciousness because I didn't want to accept in myself that I wasn't, that I couldn't, that I didn't want him to do that. And that I didn't, it wasn't fair, I guess it wasn't fair of me to say you cannot, to have the words that were perfectly legitimate for me to say, Brian, six hours is a long time on a weekend with, a, with, a, with four kids and a child with a significant disability that requires nonstop vigilance. Six hours is a lot. Why don't you play once a month or, um, you know, one hole that would take, I don't even know what that means, but like, <laughs> take like an hour or two hours. I wanted, it was my issue. I wanted to be the good guy and say, go play golf. But then that evil, you know, that devil on my shoulder was like, hell, you know, if right before you would leave, I would be like, go ahead, have fun, you know? <laughs> and I ruined it for him. Instead yeah. of, he would have, had I said, had I done a little more introspection and, you know, done more therapy myself, cause I had been in therapy. If I had done a little more work, I would have realized like I had every right, every right in the world to say, I really need you to be here. I need you like as a family member, like that's a lot of time. But because I didn't, I, I didn't want to be that person. And there was nothing wrong with being that person. I wanted to be above that. Like, oh, I can handle it. You go, you deserve it. But it's okay to have conflicting emotions and a mm -hmm. conflicting feelings about things because I really did want him to have a break. 
but six hours, come on. That's a little <laughs> expensive, is it not? It Back is, up it's, here. Yeah. That's yeah. a little expensive. It is, it is. And I don't want to kind of uh, like uh, move away from the topic because what, what you're talking about is also not just how we um, support each other kind of in a theoretical way, but mm -hmm. the work of life requires also a delegation of responsibilities, even more so when you have a child with a complex disability and complex needs. And I think that um, while, you know, many, many partners in a typical kind of a situation with a new child or when there's an added family member, if it's the third or fourth child, they, they need to reevaluate who's doing what, why, and when. And this, this is a, a real challenge uh, when there's a lot to be done and lots of different responsibilities. And uh, while we spoke in a different episode about like, uh, you know, asking for help from other people, it's sometimes even a tricky thing, as you said, to ask for help from your own partner and uh, having them maybe give up on things that they're used to doing or that they also want to do for themselves because we also want to do things for ourselves and it's uh, hard to find the time or the resources uh, financially or technically to be able to to do that mm -hmm. so um i think uh, what i want to maybe share is that for my husband and myself and again while we are trying to kind of uh, uh, talk about all sorts of relationship and all sorts of partners i want to say something that we did that is I always feel that it's like the most chauvinistic thing that we could have um, done, but this is how we divided responsibilities just because of how my natural inclination worked. And we decided that everything that needs to be with the inside of the house would be my responsibility. And everything that had to do with connecting and communicating with the outside world would be things that he takes care of. So I'll give you a few examples and maybe it would give other people ideas and uh, of how to share responsibilities beyond just communication. Um, and so again, this is what I like to do and what he uh, agreed to do. And of course you can negotiate each and every item on this list. But for example, taking the cars to be washed and fixed in the shop, that was his responsibility. Uh, cleaning things in the house and taking care of the laundry, that was my responsibility. Dealing with uh, paying uh, for appointments and um, therapists uh, and working with the insurance company that was outside of the house, that's what he did. Inviting the people for appointments and cho choosing the therapist that would actually be in touch with the, our family and our daughter, that was my responsibility. And so, uh, so on and so forth, we kind of divided everything by by who's doing uh, who's doing what and how and it really helped put kind of a balance into things and uh, it wasn't always like an equal distribution of time and responsibility but it worked because we each kind of did the things that are easier for us to do my husband had this like meticulous excel spreadsheets on who paid what to how and how much we got back from the insurance and how much we have to do again i have no attention spam for those tiny details and i was i'm still extremely grateful that he's dealing with this side of the you know 
act. And I'm more, I think, inclined to do the social relationship and to check in with the people that come to the home, like how, how are you doing? How was your day? What's going on in your life? And to make that uh, kind of social relationship with the team, uh, the professionals that work uh, around our daughter, which is uh, quite a big group. We have about 14 yeah. people professionals and professionals that I the team that I'm running and uh, and and that's um, <laughs> yeah that's uh, that's a big uh, a big job as well but it, it's very different but mm-hmm. that works for us and uh, I think uh, just that technical separation really helped a lot and uh, there was one thing uh, again for us as as couple when we kind of landed into this uh, disability life is that I already had a lot of experience and training in it because I just finished, you know, a master's degree in rehabilitation counseling with a postgraduate certification in assistive technologies. I knew that kind of area. I had lots of work experience before our daughter was born with mm-hmm. people with disabilities. And I already, and we spoke about it before, I had this like educational plan with the radical unschooling and all that. And now it needed to be converted. It had to be changed into a kind of an interdisciplinary rehabilitation plan instead of an educational plan. But nevertheless, I knew kind of the vision and I knew the services that were available. Thank God that with all of our travels around, you know, North America, with all of the different places that we uh, ended up living in the US and in Canada, the the time in life that uh, our daughter was born and diagnosed, we were in Berkeley, California, and my uh, degree was uh, from California. So I knew the systems much better than, for example, in New Jersey, when we were living later or in Alberta, Canada, it just, it was really helpful. So I was a little bit more on top of the game, you know, in, in a way. So in all of that, there was also, it helped, helped us divide responsibilities because it was clear where everybody's strengths were at that point in time. And I hope that for people who are listening to us, maybe they can also kind of evaluate the situation. What, what is everyone's forte in this uh, relationship and who can take which role with a relative is because nothing is easy, especially not in the beginning, but how you can divide things so there's less friction, there's less arguments and that you can really support each other just by virtue of helping each other do things that they don't like. Yes, and even if we're not in a relationship, uh, you know, a love romantic relationship, we can have, you know, the things that we're talking about, they can be done with friends, they can be done with, you know, family members who are very supportive, a parent, who may have the time, you know, your parent, the, you know, the, the grandparent of the child. Um, so all of these things can be discussed. Everything that we're discussing pretty much can be discussed with, with um, a family member, an extended family member, someone, a good friend, people who are in your support system. Something that you mentioned, um, I just wanted to piggyback on it because um, what you're saying about the dividing and conquering of those tasks, we did the same thing and it was really helpful until it wasn't helpful. And we had to revisit it and re-strategize because um, again, a lot of these things you don't know until the shit hits the fan that it's not working. So with us, you know, my husband is very good at, you know, the numbers and and paying the bills, you know, all the stuff that I used to do when I was single that he kind of took over when when we got married, but it was very helpful. All the stuff like you're saying with insurance and 
um, all the, you know, the, the dealing with the cars, dealing with all the stuff outside the house. And I was dealing with all the teachers and the therapists and he would attend meetings, you know, for the IEP meetings and things like that as Lincoln got older. But what I realized later on that had caused me a tremendous amount of um, emotional stress. Um, again, I just took it as a given that this was all on me. Um, dealing because dealing with the day to day and the phone calls from the school telling me about my son's you know behaviors that were not behaviors that I felt comfortable with and that was uh, that I was often mortified by. Um, took such an emotional toll on me that I, I literally had to start taking medication because I was so anxious about the phone ringing from the school. So even though my husband was taking on so much of the practical stuff that was just easier for him to do than me, it finally dawned on me, again, through counseling and through, you know, just my own introspection, that these tasks even though I, you know, I too had a professional background, I'm a social worker, these things came easier to me, or I had more time because I wasn't working outside of the house at this time. I was just, you know, at home with the kids. It made sense that I was doing all the stuff with the schools and all the therapists and finding social engagements for my kids and all this stuff. And again, this is all stuff that has to do with children, Tip, neurotypical children and children with disabilities. So I just want to make that point that our, it's not like our kids with disabilities are so much harder all the time than the other kids. This is a parenting issue, but it can be more significant when you have a child who has a lot more needs than a typical child. Um, it was taking such emotion, an emotional toll on me to be dealing with people not... Um, including my son and dealing with him in a way that was causing so much stress for him, for the child and for, for me um, and having to navigate all these things took such an emotional toll. And then my husband would come home from work. Hey, how's everybody doing with this big smile on his face? And again, I wanted to strangle him mm -hmm. and it wasn't rational. It was more that I, that the nature of the work that he was doing at his, you know, place of business, as well as the, you know, he was able to do our taxes online and he's alone doing, you know, he's, it's, you know, it's busy work. It's not emotionally taxing work. So my life was so consumed by things that were triggers for me, for, you know, from my own childhood, maybe, or from my own parents and just the nature of the kinds of calls I was getting and the kind of navigating that I had to do was really, it was a constant reminder that, you know, my life was really hard and it wasn't like my friends, you know, a lot of my friends' lives. And, you know, it was very triggering to do this kind of work with the family every single day, all day long, and sometimes all night long. And he didn't have to do that kind of work. So once I was able to identify why I was so upset and you know, I didn't even want to look at my husband sometimes, and I'm I'm not alone in this. I'm not going to out people, but I've had so many parents, uh, you know, moms tell me that like they literally couldn't even look at their husband when they walked in the door because they were so angry at them irrationally. They were just like, "Don't even talk to me." Don't like the day that I've had. Don't even talk to me. And as you can imagine, the partner feels alone and isolated by that. Their wife or their 
the husband, you know, doesn't want to even talk to them or can't have a smile when they walk in the door and they're expecting this nice homecoming. You're like, you're not, you know, with, you want a nice homecoming with the way that I just spent my day. That interaction is so common when somebody walks in the door. Um, you know, it's, it, it's so interesting how COVID has changed so much of that because everybody was home. So, so much of that has shifted. And for people who do, I know that uh, Iris, your husband works at home, you know, most of the time. And um, it is that dynamic because of the nature of the work that we do if we are a stay-at-home parent is so incredibly emotionally draining. And, you know, it's exhausting and it's also can be very painful. Um, so, I say that because it is vitally important that our partner take on some of those, whatever we deem, we need to first identify what are the most emotionally um, upsetting, draining, difficult things for us to do and have our partner take on some of those. So we started that. So it's not like anybody's a bad parent or a bad you know, necessarily you know, not doing their part. It's identifying what is what it is that we need from our partner. And sometimes we don't have the words or we're not even conscious because we feel like I'm the mother, I'm supposed to do this. This is my job, my role. No, it is not. It is the role of both parents to take on some of the emotionally taxing work. And um, that is my advice. <laughs> for, you know, and again, this is, I've heard from countless women that this is kind of the crux of a lot of couples problems that there isn't the identification and then the addressing of those needs by both parents. Uh, because we feel that, you know, the man or the woman or, you know, one woman in the relationship, the other woman or one man, the other man, we have these preconceived ideas of what we're supposed to be doing. And we're not even aware that someone else can do that. Our partner can help out with those things. And if we say, I need you to do this, they're more than happy to take it on. But we have to be comfortable with acknowledging that it's too much for us um, and not thinking I'm a bad mom because I can't take this on. Yeah. So that's a long-winded... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. Yeah. And I, uh, I think that, um, you know, for, for us in the relationship, you mentioned something really important here with the pandemic and how that kind of changed the, the game for so many families and, and changed the, the whole dynamics because one partner came back to, to the house after working outside of the house or both of them suddenly. Um, for us, it's, it's kind of like an interesting take because uh, obviously I, um, we spoke about us uh, being an unschooling family and the, both kids at home. And uh, one of the things that happens to a couple after, after a diagnosis or you know, during this life journey with the child with a disability is that a lot of things, a lot of things change. And I think for both my, my husband and myself, there was a serious, serious kind of hit to our careers because of um, the situation and the priorities that we uh, adjusted and changed as a result of that. And I have to say that one of the things that um, my husband, obviously, he uh, quit jobs to relocate to be where I thought was uh, the best option for therapy for our, our daughter and uh, taking salary cuts or losing like a prestigious role in favor of another one that was closer to where we wanted to be. And uh, in one point in the game, he actually, I think, uh, 
probably six years before the pandemic, he started working from home. So there is another adult in the house because it, it was the situation required two adults at all time with our daughter once we had another you know, baby and a toddler and uh, it, it couldn't be done just with one adult. And this is one of the things that um, really can happen with, with couples that uh, they have to change their entire lifestyle and, and life aspirations and career goals, et cetera, to, to accommodate the situation. And uh, that's or really- figure out a workaround or figure out and strategize so that you can- Make it work. Maybe you can make it work, but it takes, but in any situation, it will take mental work, practical work, going to counseling, going to job coaches, maybe. It takes some, uh, it's some kind of work and that it is a serious investment that must be made because if we all want to succeed, you know, with, with marriages and a happy family life, that's not too stressful. We have to invest that time in figuring out what role we're all, we're all going to play and how we're going to do it. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was trying to get to, to summarize this story. It's, it's basically, there, is, there needs to be an open communication. There needs to be a sharing in, of the view of the new goals in life and where we want to, to go and where we want our child to go in their kind of own journey and how we help uh, reach those goals. And if the couple is in a good place and they can discuss and come to an agreement on, on their own, this is terrific. And times that they can't, it's always, there's absolutely no shame in uh, getting outside help, whether it's like temporary counseling or a long-term long relationship with someone who can accompany the, the couple in their journey. And uh, both, both Alma and I were sharing how we in different uh, points in our life needed some professional help and, okay. uh, and, and advice from other people that were kind of external to our daily struggles. And I think that's a uh, start, you know, a therapist once said to me, therapy is like a train. You can get off and then get on again when you need to. And it is very true. I used to think, oh, well, I was already in therapy. I'm supposed to be completely uh, <laughs> fixed now, but different situations come up and it's important to go back and revisit and, you know, new situation, new set of challenges, new, new ways to cope. And, you know, you'd be surprised once you identify your needs and get that validation that that's a legitimate thing that you're asking for or thinking about. And that, again, could be with friends. So joining support groups, um, or going to therapy, going to counseling, but I, I highly recommend, you know, as Ira said, going to counseling to figure out what you're going through and then um, be able to, you know, both parties get that individual counseling to be able to come together and express our needs in a calm manner because oftentimes our behavior um, is, is we, we act out when we're upset because we don't, we're not validating our own needs. And that's oftentimes when we do act out because we don't feel like we're justified in asking for these things or we're not deserving of, of things. And once we really see that our needs are legitimate, we'll be calmer and we'll be able to communicate in a better way so that everybody gets their needs met. Definitely. Alma, I think that uh, obviously our pages are still filled with points and uh, pointers of things that we can can and should discuss with regards to relationship in the midst of disability life and uh, how it affects everybody in that equation, not just a couple. Uh, so let's uh, let's agree that we should, in one point in the future, revisit this very charged, very... One. We're going to need more than one more episode yeah. on this. Yeah, so I, I really appreciate... 
sorry, <laughs> I really appreciate <laughs> you joining me today. And uh, again, this this is a heavy topic. I am am looking forward to seeing you again next time, but even more so to hear from people that are listening about uh, their challenges and their success stories with their partners and keeping the couples together in the, uh, I guess, eye of the storm, right? That's how you yeah. say it in English, in the eye of the storm. And uh, in the eye of the storm all the time, because if we don't address it all the time, then there will be a storm. There's less, <laughs> of, a, there's less of a chance of a storm if we're always conscious and mindful of how we're communicating with our partners. Definitely. Thank you, Alma. I will see you next time. All right. Bye. Thanks, everybody. For more information, please go to www.twomomsnofluff.com.